Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. I've gotten a letter like this before, and I opened it up, and it's a letter addressed to me, my first and last name, and it's an oddly personal letter from someone I have never met, someone I don't know, and it says this. He talks about his, him and his wife for a minute, and he says this. He says, in these turbulent times, many of our neighbors are wondering, do current world affairs indicate that the end of the world is near? Can Bible prophecy give any answers to what is happening right now? If so, can we do anything to survive the end of the world? What will happen after the end? You ever, anybody ever get a letter like this? I've gotten some over the last few years uh, as I've lived in Roseburg. And it goes on and shares a few other things about prophecy and the end times. And then at the end, it says if you want some more information uh, to go to a website. Um, it's interesting because people right now are just looking for answers. And it's throughout the course of time and and when the world stage is set the way it is right now, and when Eastern Europe is in the news as it is right now, and the conflict that exists, and the war that is going on between Russia and Ukraine, and all of the other world leaders that may or may not participate, and the nations that may or may not participate over the course of the next few weeks and months in trying to establish peace, it can be a time for as where. It can be a time where, as Christians, we reduce everything to fear. And what's interesting about what we believe is this. Our belief will always drive our behavior. What we believe in will always drive our behavior. In Acts chapter number 2, we're going to read about a few, a few verses of Peter's sermon. And we're going to set the stage in just a moment, but in Peter's sermon, what he's going to do is he's going to take some time to identify who Jesus is. And when we have a message like this that seems so very basic and fundamental, when we describe some truths about who Jesus is, it can seem like, wow, I can't believe we're taking a whole Sunday just to talk about this. I feel like everybody knows what we believe about this, and yet it's so vitally important for us that we reestablish the basic and the fundamental truths of what we believe. And as we do, what ends up happening is this. It helps shape our perspective. It helps shape our paradigm through which we view things. And then... As we embrace these truths as core beliefs in ourselves, it ends up driving our behavior. And so today's message comes from Acts 2. We're going through the book of Acts as we have. And as we go through the book of Acts, we are finding that this is the story of how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church despite in internal obstacles and external opposition. Remember the scene as we begin the book of Acts. They're in the upper room and they're waiting in Jerusalem. And Jesus had promised that when he ascended that the Holy Spirit would descend upon them. Acts chapter 2 unfolds and we see the 
the, the picture or the scene is they're all gathered together. Um, the Bible says in one accord. In other words, in unity. They're praying together. They're waiting together. They're searching scripture together. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then this chain, uh, this, this domino of events start to happen. The Bible talks about how they, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they began to speak the message of Jesus Christ in many different languages. And the people that were there from all sorts of places began to understand the gospel, understand what they were saying in the language, their own native language. These men and women were speaking in known languages, even though they were never taught these languages. And so these followers of Jesus Christ, who no longer lived in Jerusalem, but they were scattered all over the place, were able to hear the gospel in their own native language and then return back home. Now, these verses are a very small portion of what happened. Uh, It summarizes what happened. And Peter takes the opportunity after the Holy Spirit falls upon them to preach the first sermon we see after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, and this is what we read. In fact, let's read this verse together. Ready, begin. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a beautiful verse? We're just going to rest on those words for just a moment. When Peter did hear was not like a rabbi teaching. It wasn't like anything they were used to. He stood and he addressed them, the Bible says. The, the writer of Acts is Luke, and Luke uses that word addressed in a very specific way because he's referencing Roman oratorical teaching. He's referencing a very specific style of oration that was reserved for Roman scholars as they would teach the masses. And Peter stood up, and this was not just going to be another lesson or a teaching that a Roman orator would give. No, this would be a message preached by the Holy Spirit of God as it filled Peter. He was standing and delivering this message, and it was a message that would be clear, authentic, it would be Uh, relevant, it would be powerful, and it came from Peter of all people. We remember what Peter's profession was. What was he? He was a fisherman. The Bible goes to some lengths to describe. He wasn't a learned person. He wasn't someone that had years and years of education. He was blue collar as they come. He was just one of the guys and yet we see this amazing transformation in Peter, this resurrection and redemption. And so the filling of the Holy Spirit moves Peter to share the gospel and he says, uh, and it says here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, this is where we picked off a few weeks ago, Peter's sermons had this line in it, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're following in our notes today in the Bible app or there in front of you, everyone is included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say those words again. Say them with me. Ready? Begin. Everyone is included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as a society, we do a pretty good job, I would say, of embracing diversity. It may not always seem that way, but when you look around, we are generally really good about embracing diversity. Diversity makes sense to us. After all, our nation was founded by people coming here from another country, and so most of us have a heritage that involves people that journeyed to America for one reason or another. 
And for that reason, diversity is celebrated. We love thinking about our ancestry and our heritage. How many of you have ever filled out one of those a blood tests that will tell you where your lineage comes from? Anybody? Um, how many of you have gone to Ancestry.com and filled that out and seen where your family tree comes from? All of that is very interesting. We make big deals of family trees, and if you'd like to find out more about your background or where your family comes from, there's ways to do that. I want you to look at this statement in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21 and this statement here through the lens of first century Jerusalem. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see those promises and we see that word everyone and because of our nature of embracing diversity to the best of our ability, because of the fact that we like to include everyone, we have no problem with this statement. And we'll think of verses that say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish. We think about verses like in Romans where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To be fair, diversity was not celebrated in first century Jerusalem. Everyone wasn't included back then like we think of everyone today. I want to remind you what first century Jerusalem looked like and the tension that exists between cultures. I want you to remember the steps they would have taken to avoid one another. John chapter 4 records the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we remember the story. Jesus tells the disciple, uh, we need to go to Samaria. They're headed uh, to go from one village to another village. And customarily in the time there for a Jewish person to travel from point A to point B, they would avoid Samaria. They would walk on the outskirts of the town. They would walk in roads that were developed by Jewish people for Jewish people so they would not have to even walk in the same city as Samaritans. And the disciples say, well, there are other ways to get there. Surely, Lord, what? what? And he said, I need to go to Samaria. And he talks about how when he gets there, he sends the disciples away and they end up getting some food and something to drink. And he sits there at the well at the hottest point of the day. So he's already in an outsider nation, Samaria. He's a Jewish person at a Samaritan well and, a well, and he's there and he comes at the hottest point of the day. And then he meets this woman at the well. This woman herself is an outcast of a country of outcasts. She herself is an outcast, and she herself comes to the well at the hottest point of the day because she's not welcome to go at the cool time of the day. She's not welcome to go when other women would go. She's not welcome to go because she herself is an outcast in her own society, and she goes and she goes to the well, and, and Jesus strikes up this conversation, and it's this amazing conversation where Jesus reveals to her who he is. But it all started with the with the fact that he went out of his way to go to this nation. Remember the story of Jesus uh, telling the story of the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells this story and he tells the story of a man traveling in. He gets beat up by robbers and thieves. A Jewish man. And as he does, he, um, two people come by and, and as they come by, uh, a priest comes by and someone else comes by and they see this man and uh, they take no steps to help him. 
And then the Samaritan comes. And he sees this man beaten. And the Samaritan comes down off of his animal to help this Jewish person. And you got to understand what was going on through the audience that was hearing the story. Why would the Samaritan come off? Why is he traveling the same road as the Jewish person, first of all? Right? And why is he coming off his animal? And why is he the one that, and he pays to take care of this Jewish man, and then he pays enough so that when he comes back, he will settle up the bill? Why is this all these happening? Well, the cultures didn't just dislike one another. The cultures hated one another. They avoided traveling on the same road with anyone. They would avoid being seen with anyone from this culture. So when Peter says from the words of Joel, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This was not just a platitude that we all received with open arms. This was something that was jaw-dropping and shocking to the audience. Everyone, everyone. Are we sure there's no caveats? No. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. First of all, this was not going to go well with the religious elite. You think about the religious elite, the Jewish religious elite, and for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they have been waiting for a Messiah. For hundreds of years, they have, they have re, uh, recounted to themselves, we are the people, uh, and he is our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, J- and Jacob. We are the Jewish people, we are the nation of Israel, and he is our God, like he's only our God. We went through slavery and we were redeemed. We, uh, we got out of Egypt. We are his people. He set up this nation for us. And someday the Messiah is going to come back for us. For us. The religious elite heard these words and they said, Hold on just a minute. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord well, what have we been doing waiting here for? Why, why does everyone get to get what we have been waiting for? We've been slaves in our own nation. We've been occupied by the Roman government. And now you're saying everyone? So it didn't go over well with the religious elite. It didn't go well with people who weren't raised Jewish. They looked at this promise and they said, We have to join them now? For years and years and years, we've avoided them. For years and years and years, we haven't traveled the same road. For years and years and years, we won't sit at the same table. There are purification rites that they go to just if they come in contact with us. You're saying now we join them? Everyone was going to be included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Peter's sermon so far, there's some spectacular things that he has talked about. If you remember from a few weeks ago, he uh, quotes from Joel. And when he quotes from Joel, he talks about uh, the young men shall see visions and the old men shall dream dreams and the young men and women shall prophesy. And, and these, are, these are big, dynamic, mysterious words for us. We don't deal with visions and dreams and prophecies like they did. And so for us to see that, that would be the most shocking part of what Peter said. All of a sudden, people are going to have visions. They're going to have dreams. They're going to prophecy. Man, this is exciting. I can't wait for the Spirit of God to come. If the Spirit of God means we're going to have visions, well, that's exciting. If the Spirit of God means we're going to have dreams, well, that's 
I don't know what that looks like. If the Spirit of God means we're going to prophesy what happens next, that's exciting. And yet the audience in Acts chapter 2, they would have been used to all that. Visions for them, they, they were used to having visions in their history. Uh, the dreams, the audience in Acts 2 would not be stopped in their tracks with dreams. Dreams were the norm in hearing from God. Prophecies, they'd grown up with the culture of having prophets that would prophesy, prophesy. The jaw-dropping part about what Peter was quoting from in Joel was that the Spirit of God would move in all his people. Both Jews and Gentiles, both men and women, both clean and unclean, both insider and outsider, both sinner and saint, everyone, all, all, yeah, all. All of us can come to the foot of the cross. All of us can come and receive salvation. All of us can come and be baptized into the faith. All of us can have access to God's word. All of us can pray. All of us can come boldly before the throne of grace to gain mercy and help in time of need. All of us. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John says it this way in John 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by by believing you may have life in his name. So as we move through Peter's sermon, we begin to see that one of his main objectives in this sermon is to identify who Jesus is. Let's read on his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As we talked about earlier, Peter uses Scripture as the basis for his message, and he delivers this message, and in it he doesn't mix words. He clearly paints the picture that Jesus was this one who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then he calls their attention to Psalms chapter 16. This is one of King David's psalms. So as he begins reading in verse 25, he's quoting from Psalm 16. He says this, For David concerning him, or I'm sorry, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So, Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross as if he were a guilty sinner, guilty of all sin, even being made sin for us. The work of was an act of a holy God giving love for us so that Jesus himself did not become a sinner even though he bore the full guilt of our sin. So this is the gospel message that Jesus took our punishment. He died on the cross and remained a perfect savior through the whole ordeal proved by his resurrection. You see, apart from the resurrection, we would have no proof that Jesus successfully, perfectly paid for our sins. 
In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. It's April 17th this year, if you're uh, curious or taking notes. And we've already begun planning what that service looks like. And the reason we do such an advance is because it's the one time of year, one out of two or three times of year, where people are more sensitive to hear the gospel message. And why? Because it's the celebration of our faith. And apart from the resurrection, we have no proof that Jesus successfully or perfectly paid for our sins. If you and I would like to make a trip to go see the tomb of Buddha, we may do so. We could go see the tomb of Mohammed. We could go see the tomb of Joseph Smith, the tomb of Charles Russell. And in each one of those tombs, there will be the remains of someone who once was alive and is now dead. But if you and I were to make our way to Israel and search for what is to believe to be the tomb of Jesus, we might find the tomb, but we will not find the body. Because apart from the resurrection, we have no proof that he successfully paid. But he has risen, and because he has risen, it is the, 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 the fundamental truth of our faith. Now, how does the fact that Jesus lives impact your behavior every day? We, we begin with the truth that says this, um, what we believe will, be dri will drive our behavior, right? And so we have to embrace this truth that Jesus is alive. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. You remember the song? He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. So, if Jesus is alive in your heart, how does that drive the behaviors in your life? Acts says it this way, neither is there salvation in any other, whereby we must be saved. Philippians, Paul says it this way, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Paul says it this way in Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says this in Colossians, he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. He took away the record of the charges being held against us by nailing it to the cross. And some of us, every single day, we take up those charges, we yank them off the cross and we carry them with them. We carry them with us. Those things that Jesus has died for, those things that Jesus has paid the penalty of death for, those things that have uh, been forgiven and cleansed in our life, that he has nailed to the cross, for some reason we go and we pluck those charges off and we put them in our back pocket and we bear the, the guilt and the shame of that every day. And yet he lives. He lives. He has resurrected he has born uh, he has given us the ability to be born again through the power of the resurrection uh, look what Paul says continues he says this in verse 28 verse 28 you have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence he says this brothers I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David he's no longer quoting from Psalms anymore this is Peter speaking he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. What is Peter saying? He's saying he's, 
David's not talking about himself. He is talking prophetically about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. Peter points out that in this psalm, he cannot be talking about its uh, his self, David, because he is de- dead and remains buried. The psalm is then speaking prophetically about the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Remember, Jesus came from the lineage of David, so it was one of his descendants. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all all are witnesses. So he reminds them they saw Jesus. They saw him bodily, bodily. They saw him physically. They ate with him. They spent time with him. He goes on to describe Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now pause real here, right here for a moment. Think of the weight of that statement. For a Jewish person to acknowledge that Jesus was at the right hand of God would be near blasphemous. But this is the truth of the gospel. Uh, he says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Paul then, or Peter then transitions in verse 34 to quote from Psalms 110. So in this message, he's quoted from Joel, Psalm 16, and now Psalms 110. Verse 34, he says this, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this begins the third Old Testament passage. Psalms 110. The verse of the Old Testament is quoted, this verse I should say, uh, of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single verse. Very interesting. New Testament more than any other verse. And in this psalm, David understood and proclaimed the deity of the Messiah. So uh, the word Lord, there's two different ways that's translated uh, back in the Hebrew. And, And so if in your Bibles, if the word Lord is in all capitals... Uh, look at verse 34 and verse 35 again. In your Bibles, if a word is uh, Lord is in all capitals, we're talking about Yahweh, God. But if it's a capital L and the rest are lowercase Lord, this is Adonai, this references Jesus. And so this confused the audience greatly because what Peter was doing is he was calling the Messiah God. In this psalm, King David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded that Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, the Lord, spoke to David's Lord as God. And what is happening here is Peter uses this psalm to show that the Messiah, who is the focus of Psalm 110, is in fact divine. He is God. Colossians says it this way, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peter ends this portion of the sermon with this statement. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now, the, the power in this text is revealed when you embrace what Peter is saying. He's saying that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This is the proclamation that would change the course of history, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is not only Messiah, he is God incarnate. Jesus wasn't just another good teacher. They had plenty of those. They had plenty of good teachers. He wasn't just another person that uh, came and died. He resurrected the Spirit of God, raised him from the dead. C.S. Lewis put it very interesting. He said it this way. I'm trying to hear to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And this is what they say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis said this. That is the one thing we can't say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He's either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. That must have been a common reference back in the day for C.S. Lewis. He says, a person that says these things, he's either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. C.S. Lewis finished this way. Don't come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is this. You must come to a place in your life where you take the words of Jesus and you embrace him as the son of God or you discount him as a madman or something worse. He's either a lunatic or the son of God. There is no in-between. You cannot go through life and simply say, well, Jesus, he was a great teacher, and I'm going to pick up a half a dozen things for him and from him and some of the things he says, and I will incorporate those into my life, and my life will be a little bit easier and I'll be able to get along with people. And some of those things about forgiveness, I don't know if I can, I can take on, and some of those other things he said I can't take on, but I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that because Jesus was a good teacher. C.S. Lewis and I... I say amen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says Jesus never left it open for that. We must proclaim him Lord of Lord, Lord of Lords, or discount him as a heretic or something worse. This letter I got a few weeks ago has been on my desk. Um, It's so important that you know what you believe. It's so important as followers of Jesus Christ that we establish the truths by which we will stand on our faith. Because if we're not careful, a letter like this that seems harmless, that seems um, polite, that seems casual enough, has the power to distort truth to manipulate it on such a level that you would never recognize truth for what it is again. People often say, Daniel, at what point do you, um, 
Do you choose to pursue unity with other followers of Jesus Christ? And for myself, it comes down to two things. Who do you, what do you believe about who Jesus is? And what do you believe what Scripture is? Because if we can come to agreement on who Jesus is, that sets the basis for our foundation for the rest of our relationship. If we can come to an agreement on what we believe Scripture is, that allows me to have some basis. But we are living in a culture that takes these two ideas of what, who Jesus is and what Scripture is and distorts them from the very core. And so while you might have a conversation or, or a seemingly innocent conversation with someone who says, well, yeah, we believe what Jesus said. That's a different thing than believing in Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came to save us from our sins. He is Lord of all creation. We bow down and worship him and him alone. He is Lord and master of our life. We follow him. We worship him. When our worldview doesn't align with how Jesus views the world, then we shift our view, to, our view to align his. When our politics don't line up with how he views things, we submit our politics to him. When our feelings don't make sense of who God is, we submit our feelings to Jesus Christ. We just don't proclaim him Lord and Savior when we get saved and make our decision for Christ on the day that we get baptized. But every single day we submit to him, our Lord and our Savior. It is a daily relationship. And so one of the reasons why it's so important for us to study Scripture uh, verse by verse or line upon line or to go through a book of the Bible like this is this. It affords us the opportunity not to skip any parts. And as difficult as it might be, we're going to handle some, some topics in the next few weeks that, that unpack what it means to be true, wholehearted believers in Christ. The ends of Acts chapter 2, they come to Peter and they say, well, what should we do? Because believing in Christ uh, should be demonstrated in our life, and Paul gives them some things that they must do. Um, our lives need to be in such a place where we are fully and wholly submitted to him. Every day we get to submit to him. Every day we get to proclaim him Lord and Savior. And so today, as we consider these verses, as we consider uh, the last verse of Acts chapter 2, or, the, or today's text, Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, it says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's take a moment to bow as we reflect and we respond. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider these truths about who you are, would you, um, would you just open our eyes and our hearts? Father, it can be very um, difficult to hear your voice above the noise. And there's a lot of noise in our life. There's a lot of noise from all different places, Lord all the different places that our hearts may be choosing to listen to. There's just a lot of different noise. And so I would pray, Lord, that we would um, 
hear your voice singularly, clearly. Would you give us a desire, Lord, to pursue you as both Messiah and Lord? For those of us who have accepted your gift of salvation, Father, may we live out every single day with that type of expectancy. That we would know for certain that you are our Lord and our Christ, both Messiah and Lord. And then, Father, when we are presented with what looks to be truth, but truth that has been distorted, truth that has been manipulated, truth that has been watered down. Would you, Holy Spirit, awaken something inside of us that is wise and discerning to see past that? Father, help us to be people of your word. Help us to be people that take time to embrace, to study, to receive your word. Help us to be people of prayer, to take time to pray and to seek your truth and your word and your direction and your guidance about our families, about our decisions, about our finances, about our housing. Would you just allow us to be people of your word? be our Lord and our Messiah. For those who have never placed their trust in you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That from these words clearly marked in Scripture, they would have heard the truth that Jesus is God. That he lived a sinless, perfect life. That he died on a cross. Fully proving, perfectly proving that he was God when he resurrected. And that the life that we can live now is made possible through his death and burial and resurrection. Father, if this is, if this is the day, Lord, I pray that you would give courage to those who are seeking you to make that decision. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.